Good morning. I'm uh, Um, just a note, uh, I'm not going to be here this next week. I'm, uh, there's been some misunderstanding there, but uh, Mount Helena, which is my church, supposedly, I haven't been there very much the last year and a half, <laughs> but um, they're having a men's retreat next week. And so on, uh, on um, Friday, or Thursday, actually, we go up to uh, Echo Lake, and I'll be there till Saturday. And then I'm driving from there over to Haver to uh, go to the Trace Diaz um, administrative meeting, so, planning meeting. Okay, so um, I've been to only one of those, and uh, I'm I'm going to go to that. So at at the Christian Church there in Haver. So I won't be here next week. I'm not sure who. Um, Jim has uh, uh, planned on for next week, but just a heads up, he'll see this video and he'll uh, he'll freak out. So that'll be good. <laughs> so um, I mentioned this book to you guys last week, and I wasn't planning on using this as an introduction, but I would like to uh, read a what's that? Okay, um, <laughs> good. Uh, I wasn't planning on using it as an introduction, but then when I got into this passage or, or passages I want to share this morning, I was like, okay, this fits so well. I want, I want you to catch this. And uh, you'll understand it as I go. This is from the fourth chapter of this book. It's called Imagine the God of Heaven. It's written by a fellow named John Burke, who is a pastor in Austin, Texas. And um, he's written out two books on what he calls near-death experiences. He's done quite a bit of work. I think he's interviewed, if I remember properly, um, about 5,000 people who have had near-death experiences, and he estimates that there's a, annually there's about 5 million people around the world that have these near-death experiences. And you can look it up on the internet. There's all kinds of stuff. Uh, there's a whole satanic part of that. Um, it's weird, but... Uh, he contends, and I, and I tend to, you know, just from the reading I've done of this, tend to agree that um, a lot of them have some very specific things that happen during uh, their, their near-death experiences that are consistent. And uh, so anyway, this one is unique because of uh, what actually happened. It's a little gory as I begin, but um, just stick with me. I'm going to read about two pages. So... Um, it was an October day in 1984, and Dr. Ron Smotherman had just finished his last lecture of the week in Bristol, England. He found it so satisfying to use his medical training in psychiatry and neurology to heal families. After he'd written a trilogy of books, his week-long seminars had been in demand around the world. Now he was headed back to San Francisco, where he lived, and worked in private practice. Ron believed in Jesus and taught families in crisis how to access the love of God. But at times, he struggled with not feeling or experiencing the magnificent love himself. But that would soon change. After a grueling 11-hour flight from Heathrow to San Francisco, Ron was picked up by his assistant, Pamela. She drove him to his home, where his friend Amen, which is a pseudonym, 
um, had been house-sitting for the week. A man had recently been evicted from his own house and would have immediately been homeless if Ron hadn't mercifully invited Amin to house-sit while he was in England that week. Little did Ron know that a psychotic time bomb was about to go off. How are you, Amin? Ron asked. You don't look well. Amin was sitting on the stairs in the entryway of the house. Ron could see from the deranged look in his eyes and the sweat beating on his forehead that something was off with the muscular 28-year-old. As Ron reached out to his hand to check him for a fever, Amon let out a blood-curling scream and struck Ron on the side of the head with the edge of a steel tennis racket he had been holding. The blow knocked Ron to, his, to the ground. Ron got up yelling, Amen, what are you doing? He was knocked to the ground again. Amen had suffered a psychotic break. Ron didn't realize Amen had a 10-inch knife in his other hand, and he was stabbing Ron each time he was knocked down. Pa Pamela ran for help. When Ron got up again, he saw blood on the walls and the knife in Amen's hand and finally realized it was his own blood. Amen screamed, I'm going to kill you. Ron grabbed Amen's shoulders, looked into vacant, evil eyes, and pleaded, Amen, don't kill a man. Amen stabbed Ron 13 times in the chest, neck, and back. Ron watched as Amen drew back his arm, aiming the 14th blow for the heart to finish him off, and time stopped. I noticed Amen's, over Amen's left shoulder, a hallway appeared. It is made of something that appears to be solid light. Strangely, I, can cal I am calm and not attach the outcome of this insane event. This looks like infinity, I thought as I neared death. The light explodes into being, blocking my view of men in the hallway. Brighter than the sun, yet not hurting my eyes. It's not an ordinary light. It is living being. Excuse me. <coughs> Who, not what. If this person of light came down the hallway, that hallway, he must have traveled at warp speed. The light itself is a person, exactly my height. Instantly, the qualities of this person are written across my awareness, not in one, two, three fashion, but imprinted instantly into, my, into myself, my heart, my consciousness. I'm stamped with the knowledge of the nature of God. I do not have to wonder about the identity of this light. There is no room for doubt. This is God. How will I ever describe this to you? I never really understood the glory of God thing before I witnessed it. God is truly glorious, magnificent, awesome, without equal. His glory is a light, but made of infinite love. God's light appears like a sudden, silent, atomic bomb blast of white light full of his power. Imagine being five feet away from the source of a nuclear explosion, but his light is more than light. It is overwhelming, a literal tsunami of infinite, unconditional love. All it touches transforms into perfect peace, and it blows away into irrelevancy any consideration about what is happening, replacing it with ineffable ecstasy, irresistible joy, and love beyond comprehension. 
all in a singular package. A nuclear bomb blows life away, but love, excuse me, God's love blows death away. Looking back, I don't think time stopped, Ron explained to me as, I, as he described this event. I think time accelerated to the speed of light with the presence of God. Ron had no concern at all about the attack as God's love exploded within him. I'll let you read the rest of this some other time. It's a, it's a great story. So, we've been, uh, we started last week looking at uh, the I am's of John. We looked at I am the bread of life, and this week I want to look at uh, John 8, 12, but we're not going to go there yet, um, where he says, I am the light of the world. This all feeds into it. As I was praying about this and trying to pull it together, um, I felt like God was saying we need to take a look at John's uh, explanation of light so that we begin to understand what all he has for us uh, when he says, I am the light of the world. So if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, uh, in his introduction to the gospel, John gives us a real clear explanation, if you would, of who God is, at least initially. And then he explains that throughout the rest of the book. I'd like to just read the first nine verses to you. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not the light, but he was sent to bear witness of, light, of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was, excuse me, that's where I went in. So, <laughs> let's pray for a second. God, I ask that you would uh, open the word of God to us, that you would give us a, a better understanding of who you are, because this is about you. We want to lift up Jesus and see more of him. And so we ask that you would do that this morning. Bless us with your presence. Thank you for what you're going to do. Open the word to us in Jesus' name. Amen. In John's introduction to this gospel, he introduces the idea that Jesus is the light and the life. This becomes a primary theme through the first half of the gospel. Light and life. John immediately tells the reader that Jesus is both and gives both. He gives life and uses light to do it, I believe. Note how John introduces us to Jesus in verses 1 to 4. Again, he, he, he tells us that he's the word. And then in verse 4, he tells us that he's the light. And then he tells us that he's the life. He's all of that. In him is life. And the life that is in him is light. What is light? Have you ever stopped and just thought about that? We're sitting in the light. We have a, 
an aura of light around us in one sense. I'm not talking about individually, I'm talking about in this place. What is the light? What does John mean here? John MacArthur states that it alludes to the light that was in the pillar of cloud that led the Israelites out of Egypt during the Exodus. That's interesting. I had never thought of it that way. I don't totally agree with that. I think it's more. It was the cloud of light that gave the Israelites vision to see where to go as they walked through the Red Sea. But I think John is stating more than that. Light illuminates everything. In order to see clearly, we need light. And some of you, as you get older, you need more light. <laughs> I know I do. My wife gets after me because we got those uh, things that you know, adjust the lights. I keep it on bright. She keeps it about midway. <laughs> I think John is stating more than that. Light illuminates everything. In order to see clearly, we need light. Verse 5 tells us that the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. That's an interesting statement, if you just stop and think about that. How is it that darkness does not comprehend light? I've been reading through the um, contemporary English version. Now, every year I, I pick a different version and I try to read the, through the scripture in a year. And uh, it translates it this way, verse 5. It says, the light keeps shining in the darkness and the darkness has never put it on. The light keeps shining in the darkness, and the darkness has never put it on. So the light that was sent from God was and is an affront to darkness, and darkness does not comprehend it. So some of you might have thought when I asked, what is light? Well, uh, duh, light is light is light. But John disagrees. He states that people in the dark did not comprehend or put on or understand the light that was right in front of them. I marvel, I don't know if you ever do this, but I marvel at the fact that God in the flesh walked daily through what we now call Israel, and most that saw him did not grab it that God was there. Light was right in front of them. They do not understand or know what this light is. Consequently, God sent a forerunner to get people ready for the light. That was John the Baptist. Verses 6 to 9 state that John was who John was, excuse me, and ready for the and excuse me, and that he was not the light but was a director or a person who directed people to the light. How did he direct people to the light? He told them to repent. You've heard or read John's message to people. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Or he pointed at Jesus when he came out to be baptized. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In the gospel, John the writer identifies John the Baptist as one who pointed people to the real light. People do not know 
who the real light is, and consequently then and now need someone to point them to the light or they'll remain in the darkness. Verse 9 in this passage states that the true light shines on all men, on every man who comes into the world. Now, think about that little phrase at the end of verse 9. He says that was the true light which gives light to some men, right? Is that what your passage Bible says? No, oh, it says every man. Excuse me, I'll look at the one back here. Every man. So light pervades our world. Light is always there for people to see and understand. But light, like in that day and time, the light is not comprehended. It's not understood. Darkness prevails. This cloud is, or excuse me, this light is not a cloud, it's a person. Just stop and think about that for a minute. It's a person. We think of light as what's going on in here, what's going on out there, what we see every day when the sun rises. But what John's talking about here is a person. It's the person of Jesus Christ who has come into the world to shed light on the condition of man and to then attract people to the light. Light has healing qualities. Sunlight is good for us. We get vitamin D from it. We get a tan from it. We need it to function, to grow things, to live by it, to see things clearly. Sunlight is the strongest, most vivid light we have unless you want to argue about laser light or an, or an atomic explosive light or other types of intense man-induced light. There are other types of light that can be used for healing and other uses. I, I use a grow light now almost every year to begin my seedlings. I'll start next month. Jesus came to heal the heart of man by bringing light. Without his light, we're lost in the darkness of sin. Darkness in Scripture is most often a metaphor for evil, for that which is not pleasing to God, for that which destroys man. When we were without Christ, we lived in the dark whether we realized it or not. Paul states this pretty clearly in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 to 13. He says, or you, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. What is it that makes manifest? What manifests the light so that you can see into the darkness? Again, it's Jesus. It's the person of Jesus. 
He contrasts the works of darkness with the works of light. We as Christians are to live in the light. We're to do the works of the light. I believe that we are living in a day of accelerated darkness. There's more coming at us that is evil than I can remember at any time in my lifetime. I think the only way to combat this onslaught of darkness is to shine light at it every chance we get. That, that mean, what I mean by that is we're to take the Word of God, we're to have a biblical worldview, so we need to take the Word of God and apply it to what's going on around us. Apply it to our, our daily lives, apply it to our work life, apply it to our political life, apply it to our family life. Apply it to our educational life. We're to bring light into those places. Light shines on moral darkness to show what is really going on and how destructive it is to mankind. Jesus insinuates all this in the next passage I want to look at in John. John chapter 3. He's met with this... Uh, teacher called Nicodemus. He's explained the new birth, and at the end of it, in John chapter 3, verse 18, he says this. He says, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So is it, I don't want to get off track here, but is it God's desire that any man be lost? No, God, right there, God wants to bring all men to himself, but people refuse that. They don't believe. Verse uh, 19, he says, And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness more than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. Jesus is having a discussion with Nicodemus, and towards the end he states that people love darkness more than they love light. Do they really know what light is? Why would someone love evil more than good? Jesus states that people love darkness more than light. I don't, I don't understand that. I know it's true. I know I have loved darkness more than light at times. But when I'm confronted with the goodness of God and His light, I don't want to have anything to do with darkness. And yet He says that people love darkness more than light. How could they? Do they really know what light is? Do people really understand that living in the light will bring great satisfaction? Do people really understand that living in the dark will bring destruction? I don't think people understand that difference. I think most of the people I run into believe that darkness brings more blessing, more fun, more joy, more satisfaction. I've actually had people say, you know, I don't want to be a Christian. 
I wouldn't be having any fun. (laughs) Paul states that people have a veil over their spiritual eyes and cannot see the light clearly. Would it be too much to say that people really do what darkness is, do not know what darkness is, and yet they flock to it? How come people do not know what light is and flock to it? What does it take for a person to go from darkness to light? I believe that it is a work of the Holy Spirit that reveals people's plight as they wallow in darkness headed for an eternity of darkness. Only the Holy Spirit set loose can turn a person from darkness to light. We as the church are called to be the display of what living in the light is like. But we are also called to set people loose from the bonds of darkness and its deceptions. We do this by prevailing prayer and by witnessing. By claiming the promises of God and by speaking to a person's issues and praying over them and and unloosing them from the bonds that hold them into darkness. All of us know lost people who are loving darkness and are headed to hell. All of us pray for their turning to the light, to life, to the joy that only God can give. But we see little results. I have come to believe that there are several reasons our prayers may not be answered. Just briefly, I, I, I listed four of them. Has the Holy Spirit been allowed to do His work in you? Are you fully surrendered to Him? Two, can you hear His voice? Do you know His promptings? He'll lead you into exactly how to pray for your loved ones if you'll sit before Him and wait for Him to speak then pray what he tells you. Third, in faith, declare what you know needs to happen. What you know needs to take place in order for that person to be loosed from darkness. Take authority over that which is deceiving your loved one and command it in Jesus' name to be gone. Believe that to be true. God will answer in his time. And then last, ask the light to shine unceasingly into their lives to show them their sin and the joy that awaits them when they turn to him. He is the light, and he will do that. I want to believe him. I hope you're believing him with me for a great, great Holy Spirit-anointed revival unlike anything any of us have ever seen. I thought we were getting close to it last year when the thing happened at Asbury. I was ready to jump in my car and go down there and just had too much going on. If it happens again, you may not see me for a while. (laughs) I want to be in that. Now, I want to look at the key passage of this sermon. I've spent the last little bit here. Jesus is the light. Go over to John chapter 8. I want to give you a little background here of what's going on in John chapter 8. You're familiar with it. There's an important context to this verse. Jesus had just had a woman caught in adultery brought to him by a group of Pharisees 
to see what he will do. He leans down in the sand and begins to write something in the sand as the men berate her and him. Have you ever wondered what Jesus wrote in the sand? There's been all kinds of ideas about that. But no one that really knows. Finally, he stands up and states that he who has no sin be the first to cast a stone to stone her. Then he leans back down and writes more in the sand. And all the men leave one by one. Now, I don't know what he wrote in the sand, but here's my best guess. He wrote down each of their names, and then he wrote their sins right beside it. And somewhere in there, I wonder if he wrote in big letters the name of the man she was committing adultery with that wasn't brought before him, that may have been one of those ten that were standing in front of him. Whatever it was, when he said, you, be, you who are without sin be the first one to cast the stone, they all went, and there it was on the ground, I think. Maybe I'm hypothesizing too much here. Finally, he stands up and asks the woman, where are all your accusers? And she says, well, they've all left. <laughs> he says, I won't condemn you now either. Then in verse 12, he states, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. What's going on here? I mean, right in the middle of this confrontation, he states, I'm the light of the world. He who walks in me won't go and walk in darkness. Please catch what's just happened. Light has confronted darkness and shown darkness the beauty and joy of light. Let me ask you, was the woman in darkness? Everybody do like this. You're still alive out there. Was the woman in darkness? Yes. Were the Pharisees in darkness? Thank you. Now we're getting some movement. Yeah, amen. How did the light handle the darkness at this point? Was there condemnation? No, there was love. There was kindness. There was hope for the future. Go and sin no more. She was given a new start. I believe John placed this story in front of Jesus' revelation because he wanted to contrast light and darkness and how they deal with life. The Pharisees could only condemn. They operated from hearts in the dark. They were burdened by the law. They could not love this woman back into a right relationship back into a right life. Yet Jesus, now catch this, Jesus did in just a few minutes what they couldn't do with all their condemnation. He brought her back into right relationship. He's the light of the world. Light illuminates love. Light magnifies love. Do you think this woman heard that and believed that? 
But I think she was looking in the eyes of love, in the eyes of light, and she went, okay, it's time to change. Light magnifies love. I think she walked away saved. I don't think the Pharisees walked away saved. That next verse, the darkness strikes out in verse 13. I'm not going to read that, but they went right back at it with him. Trying to dissuade him. Trying to bring him down. Jesus is the light of the world. And darkness always tries to destroy light. Let me just give you a little tidbit of how I think. All the evil that's going on in the world right now is an affront to the light of the gospel. And it's doing all it can to destroy the light. I don't care what level you look at it on, you evil in business, evil in schools, evil in, in our institutions, evil in our political system, evil in the war there in Israel or Ukraine. All you have to do is define evil according to what Scripture says, and you'll begin to see that there's this giant conflict between light and darkness that's going on in our world. Bigger than anything I've ever experienced in my life. Some of you may have lived through something else, but this is a mind-boggling in one sense. Jesus is the light of the world, and darkness has always tried to destroy light. But to me, this begs the question, is Jesus only moral light? Because that's what we're really talking about in one sense. But that's why I read that story this, from this book. I woke up this morning and went, oh, I missed this. I sent her a note. I said, you got to put this one up. Matthew chapter 17. Listen to what happened to Peter and John and James, I believe it was. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transformed before them. Listen, his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, you know how Peter is, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If, if you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Shut up, Peter, and listen to him. His very being is light. When he says, I am the light of the world, he's not just talking about moral light. Oh, there's a huge need for moral light in our world. He's saying that he is all light. The professor who died in the book I read saw him as light. He is the light of the world, but he's also the light of heaven. And then I was led to this uh, or, excuse me, a Revelation chapter 21, 22. I like having to be able to read it without having to flip through my book. But uh, Revelation 21, 22. But I saw no temple in it. He's talking about heaven. 
the, the new Jerusalem. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Who's the Lamb? Jesus, thank you. And the city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine for it, for the glory of God illuminated. Then catch that last little bit. The Lamb is its light. He is light. As we look at these I Am's, He is the bread. He is the light. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the good shepherd. He's all of these things, and he wants us to enjoy him and get involved with that light, that life. I believe that when we get to heaven, we'll see him as light, as the professor described it. He will be magnificent beyond words. He will also, we will also see him as love. His love will overwhelm us and make us feel infinitely welcomed into his presence. Heaven will be a wonderfully awesome place filled with Jesus. Just a little application to end this with. It's a little corny. But when you turn on your lights today, and tomorrow and the next day, just when you flip the switch, we do this just without thinking. Walk into the kitchen, flip the switch. But try to take a moment and say, Jesus, light of the world, fill me with your light. Make me a light to all I come in contact with. May I shine in dark places to bring light and life. That's what we need to be doing as the church. We need to shine in dark places. Not to be bring condemnation, but to bring Christ's love and life as we bring his light. Would you all pray with me? Jesus, light of the world, come and shine your light into our lives and then through our lives. Show us areas of darkness that we need to deal with individually and then grant us the grace to do it. Use us to shine your loving light into and onto others so that they also might be part of the light. Thank you for shining your light into our dark lives and bringing us into the light. I pray right now you'd remind us of the moment you began to do that. And that we would just thank you for it. Thank you for coming into our lives, into our hearts, by your Holy Spirit. And now I'd ask, finally, that you would turn up the high beam headlights of our lives. That you would turn that light on us so that we might reflect it onto others. Thank you. We love you. In your precious name we pray. Amen.